The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. All right. Good morning, church. Good to see you all this morning. Uh, If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you grab those and open them up to the Gospel of Luke? Uh, Luke chapter 1 is where we're going to be. Uh, there are hardback, uh, hardbacked black Bibles under every chair. You can grab one of those. You can open a phone or a tablet to Luke chapter 1. Uh, Luke 1 is on page 855 in those Bibles. If I didn't get a chance to meet you on the way in, my name is Chris Martin. I'm the lead pastor here. Glad that you're with us uh, this morning. Uh, but uh, as you can tell, it is Advent. Uh, yes, there are trees. Uh, that, that's how you know it's Advent, there are trees. Um, but actually, I just wanted to let you know, technically, today is actually not the start of Advent, okay? So uh, just so you know, Advent is a church season observed during the four Sundays before Christmas Day. But this year, Christmas Eve falls on a Sunday, uh, and that happens every once in a while. And so technically, Advent begins next Sunday, Okay, so technically next Sunday, but normally we get four Sundays and then Christmas Eve and then Christmas Day. We all, you know, open presents and like like good Christians do. Okay, to you Christmas Eve openers. All right. That's a little rebuke from the Lord. All right. Uh, But this year I was like, you know what, we're going to we get to do whatever we want because we don't really follow the church calendar. And so we're starting Advent this week. So we get four Sundays plus Christmas Eve. So just save me your it's not a technically Advent emails. All right. I know. All right. I'll just send them right on to Eric Shelley. And, and uh, yeah, I don't need to know those things. OK, uh, this Advent, though, we're going to look at the Gospel of Luke, the account from Luke of the birth of Jesus. And Luke actually does something interesting in his gospel. Uh, he gives us pairs of characters in the narrative. So there are these pairs that we're going to look at, and that's going to be our jumping off point into the text this year. Luke uh, uh, gives us, starts today with Zechariah and Elizabeth, but uh, Joseph and Mary, and then Mary and Elizabeth, and then Simeon and Anna, and then shepherds and angels. That's kind of the the, the way it goes. But today we're going to see Zechariah and Elizabeth. These are uh, characters in this story that's kind of launched from Luke chapter one, and they're part of the story we find a theme, and the theme is disappointment. We find the theme of disappointment in our text today. And and what I want to do is I want to encourage those who who struggle with Christmas. That's what I want to start our Advent season with, is I want to encourage those who struggle kind of to believe in this God that we celebrate at Christmas because of the way that things have played out in their lives. Right, right, right. Uh, Maybe there's been something in your life that has left you disappointed in God in some way. And so the question I want to ask is, what do you do when God lets you down or seemingly disappoints you? Like, what do you do with that? All of your friends are getting married, uh, but you're not. Okay, all of your friends are getting jobs or, or getting promoted at their work, but it's not working out for you that way. Okay, uh, you're not, you're, you're approaching retirement and it's not looking good. You're not going to get to go on that golfing trip every, you know, three weeks for the rest of your life. It's just not playing out that way. Maybe, uh, maybe you're not having any kids in this season for whatever reason. You're unable to have children. Or maybe you do have kids, but they are turned, they've turned out in a way that you, you didn't expect for them to turn out. 
Yeah, you wouldn't tell them that, right? But if you're honest, um, you're just a bit angry about that, how the kids turned out. Or, or maybe your marriage is a wreck. It's on the rocks. And if any of those things feel like they might be hitting close to home and you're like, God, I just don't understand how this can be your plan. I don't understand that. Well, Zechariah and Elizabeth are going through their own disappointment in our text today. So let's go. Luke chapter one. Uh, we, we have a lot of verses to get through. We're going to pick up in verse five. Verses one through four is kind of an introduction to the book. And then we're going to pick up in verse five. So follow along in your text. Luke chapter one, starting in verse five. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. All right, this, uh, there are a couple things to note about Zechariah and Elizabeth as we get into this text. First, Zechariah, we're told, is a priest. He's a priest. He's a Jewish priest in God's temple. At this time, there were an estimated 8,000 priests living in Palestine. So, so he's one of 8,000, okay? And then note that they, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, are described as righteous before God and they, they walked blamelessly. They're righteous and they walked blamelessly. Now, what this means is it certainly doesn't mean that these two are perfect human beings, okay? Uh, when the Bible says that somebody is blameless, it doesn't mean that they're sinless. It doesn't mean that they're perfect. No, it means that they trust God with their sin. That's, that's what it means when somebody is called blameless in the scriptures. It means their sins are covered uh, by Christ, and thus they are no longer under the blame of their sin. That's why they're blameless. But in the, the, the text, the rub for the original readers would have been this. They're blameless, but they have no child because Elizabeth was barren. And this would have been their great disappointment. This would have been their disappointment, okay? Uh, Elizabeth certainly would have borne children had she been able. Without, without question, in this historical context, children were a sign uh, of God's blessing and God's favor. Not to mention that this is a time before 401ks, before IRAs, and so you would have children to, be, uh, to, to build up an assurance that you'd be taken care of in your old age. And the, if you're Jewish at this time, the parcel of land that you had was associated to your family line, and it would be passed on to your children. So your family inheritance was dependent upon having children as well. And that's the dissonance of this text of Luke chapter one, starting in verse five. How can these two both be blameless and barren? Those don't go together in the Hebrew mindset. Blameless and barren, no, 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 no. Cursed and barren is what goes together. Not blameless and barren. They would have been looked at as being cursed by God. People would have whispered, what do you think they did? What do you think she did to deserve this? 
Yeah, they're priests. Yeah, she's a, he's a priest. She's from the line of Aaron. They're blameless. They're walking righteously, but they've got to have some sort of baggage in their closet to cause this curse from the Lord. There's no hope for their future and their family inheritance. And, and so, so for us, listen, this Christmas, you may not be struggling with like literal barrenness. Maybe some of you, but but you may not have that struggle. But the question that I have is, do you have something in your life like this? Just something that you can't figure out why God hasn't given it to you or why in the heck he did give it to you. Hey, do you have some disappointment? Because Zechariah and Elizabeth certainly did. They certainly did. Now let's look at verse eight. Now, while Zechariah was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Okay, so this is setting this up. Of the 8,000 priests in Palestine, uh, his, his group, his lot was, was chosen to go into the temple to do uh, the work and the ministry of the priesthood. And then they would have cast lots to figure out the one priest who would actually get to go in and light incense. And this would have been the greatest moment in Zechariah's career as a priest. This, would, this only happened to you one time, if at all. You never got to do it a second time if you were a priest and you drew the lot and were able to go in and light the incense. And so Zechariah would have made his way into not just the temple, but into the holy place within the temple. Not the holy of holies, okay? Not the holy of holies where the ark was kept. Only the high priest would go in there and only one time a year would they ever dare go into that holy of holies. But he could have seen the curtain and behind that curtain was where they thought God's presence dwelt. But he would show up and there he would see the horned altar of incense right next to the entrance into the holy of holies. And he was going to burn incense as all of this multitude of people were praying outside so that their prayers would ascend to God wrapped in the sweet aroma of the, the, the incense that the priest would light. And then something unexpected happens. That's setting it all up. Look at verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So in this moment uh, of the very pinnacle of his career as a priest, 
an angel of the Lord shows up to him. And you see, it said to the right of the altar of incense. That's very specific language, but it's important. That's not, that's not normally how you would write these things unless those details actually happen. So he sees the altar of incense and to the right, an angel of the Lord appears to him and Zechariah does what everyone in the Bible does when they see an angel. He doesn't write a book about it. He doesn't, okay? John does. The, 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 the apostle John writes it, but he doesn't write a book. He doesn't, you know, post online. He doesn't do anything silly like that. He's terrified. That's what everybody who encounters an angel in the Bible does. They don't think, oh, it's my guardian angel. Great. Precious moments or something touched by an angel, right? Like this isn't, this isn't a wonderful life Clarence moment, right? That's not what's happening here. He sees the angel and he freaks out. Now, we're about to find out that he freaks out for a good reason because this angel is none other than Gabriel, the archangel, the warrior angel. Gabriel is this angel. And the angel confronts Zechariah in this moment and he says in verse 13, don't be afraid. That's the response that angels always give to the fear as people encounter them in the Bible. Don't be scared. And then he says this, your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. Now, the question that scholars want to debate about that little phrase is this. What prayer is being answered at this moment? Which prayer is being answered? Because the setup concerning Elizabeth's barrenness could mean that Zechariah in that moment was praying for a child. Could mean that. Or... It could be a reference to what Zechariah was praying for in his priestly duties as he lit the incense at the altar of incense, which would have been the redemption of Israel. So the question is, was he praying for a kid or was he praying for Israel? Was he doing his job? That's the question. And I think it's most likely that the angel is referring to the priestly prayer that he is praying as he's lighting the incense. Zechariah, I think, is asking God to redeem Israel. I think he's doing his job as a priest right now because this is the only chance he's gonna get to do this and you don't wanna botch this. So he's probably praying, Lord, cast off the oppression of the Romans. Lord, redeem your people. Bring us back into the promised land. Do your good work. Like, like fix this mess. That's what I think he's praying. Fix things. Father, and instead of fixing everything, God sends an angel and says, you're going to have a son. You're going to have a son. He promises a baby. And never in Zechariah's wildest dreams would he have ever thought that an unlikely son in his old age would also be the beginning of the redemption of God's people. He never would have thought those two things were actually united. So the angel shows up, freaks him out, prophesies about John, John the Baptist, who we'll get to at some point. But, but then Zechariah responds to this angelic prophecy in a way that is, again, unexpected. Let's look at verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Okay, 
to an angel showing up in God's temple on the greatest day of his priestly career life, he responds with disbelief. His disappointment has led to disbelief. He does not believe the angel. The angel answers the prayer for Israel with the promise of a son, and Zechariah is like, really? How, is it, how could this be? How could this be? Now, the question is why? Why doesn't Zechariah believe this? This is a pre-modern time. They believed in angels. They believed in miracles. They believed in even the Lord opening the barren wombs of women. All through the Old Testament, these things happen. He believes in these things. And so why doesn't he believe now? He's standing in front of an angel. There's a flipping angel in front of him. You ever ask God, before, like, I, God, just show me a sign. Make it clear to me what I should do. This is as clear as it gets. Literal angel in front of him, giving him clear directions. Why doesn't he believe? Listen, hear, hear me on this. It's not because he's skeptical. It's not because he's a skeptical atheist. No, he's a priest of Yahweh. He's a fearer of God. He's a priest in the temple in the moment of peak in his career. It's not because he's a skeptic. He knows the stories. He knows barren women are blessed with children in God's kingdom. It's not his skepticism that he's speaking from. I think it's his pain. I don't think he's a skeptic. I think he's hurt. I think he's hurt. Hear me. This is the rawest, softest, most difficult part of his life. How, how, how long do you think Zechariah and Elizabeth prayed for a kid? How long? How many years? How many decades? How long do you think it's been now since he gave up on that prayer? Seriously, you pray for a kid in your 20s and in your 30s and in your 40s maybe, but your 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, really? You think they're still praying this? See, this is why I don't think he's praying for a child in the temple at this day. I think he has long since given up on that prayer. I wonder if you've got some prayers like that. Some things that you asked for God to do for years. Maybe, maybe even for decades. And when it didn't pan out, you got disappointed and stopped. His wife is barren and then the text says this. Look at verse 18 again. This is really fascinating. Zechariah says, I'm old. That's what he says. He's like, well, how can this be? I'm old and my wife. And then listen, he uses a different Greek word. He doesn't say my wife is old too. He says, my wife is advanced. Advanced in years. She's not old, okay? She's seasoned. She's, she's experienced. That's what he, yeah, she, she's, she, I'm old, she's mature, right? It's a biblical euphemism here, y'all. 
She's advanced, okay? Because listen, Zechariah is no fool. He's not a dummy. Uh, even even 2,000 years ago, you never call your wife old. Never, okay? No, no, no. She's advanced, okay? That's a kind way of saying she's, she's not fertile myrtle any longer. You following me? That's what's happening in the text. But listen, how long has it been since they gave up on that prayer? Oh, he used to pray that. I'm confident of it. He used to pray. Uh, we've been there. We've prayed for kids. You've been there? Some of you have been, been there where you pray and you pray and you pray. He prayed. He prayed that prayer to no avail. And listen, now it's decades too late and it hurts. And the angel brings up that hurt on the most important day of his career, brings up that hurt and Zechariah doesn't believe. That's what I think's happened in the text. So basically, here's how I'll sum up the beginning of this story. What we have here is a man who historically has had a great deal of faith. He's a priest. And then when pressed by God on the most sensitive area of his life, he's vocal about his disbelief that God could ever pull off a thing like that. And so God is going to rebuke him. Look at verse 19. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. Okay, bad news right there. That's, that's not what you want to hear. How can this be? I'm old, she's advanced. Hey, I'm Gabriel. That's what he says. I am Gabriel. He would have known Gabriel from Daniel chapters eight and nine. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news, this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they're wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. So the penalty, okay, there's a penalty. The penalty for Zechariah's unbelief is that he's struck speechless. He's mute, can't speak. Actually, we'll see later in the chapter that he is also uh, loses his hearing. He becomes uh, deaf and mute uh, at this time. Uh, he would have been, been confined to his own silent world for the nine months of this pregnancy. And, and do, in doing so, he would have plenty of time to reflect. Plenty of time, not able to hear, not able to speak, plenty of time to think, plenty of time to pray, plenty of time to work through this. His disappointment had led to disbelief, which has been met with God's discipline. See the pattern here? Disappointment, disbelief, and now discipline. Now, I wanna do a little work on this idea of discipline for a moment because people misrepresent that word discipline all the time. They, they misrepresent the word all the time because people often think that discipline is synonym, synonymous with punishment. 
discipline and punishment. But, but the gospel says that God punished Jesus for our, all of our sin. The gospel says that Jesus paid it all. We sing that, right? Jesus was punished for our sin, which means, hear me, if you're a Christian in here, if you are in Christ, every ounce of punishment for sin was put upon Jesus. It's not on you, it's on him. And if God were to give you one more drop of punishment for sin, that would be unjust, which goes against God's character because God would be demanding two punishments for the same sin. And he can't do that. That's unjust because Jesus died on the cross and took every ounce of punishment. That's why Paul will say in Romans chapter eight, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Zero, zero punishment if you are in Christ is coming your way because of your sin, because the full amount was given to Jesus and he died in your place as a spotless substitute. So if you're a Christian, God is never, you know, I hear this sometimes, paying you back. He, he doesn't do that. If you are a Christian, God never pays you back for your sin with the hardships of your life. And I just know too many Christians who, who feel like they're under a curse of God for something that they did years ago. For something they did years or decades ago, and they have not gotten past the fact that God freely, fully, and forever forgives that stuff. They think they're being punished. But Jesus is the wrath absorber. He is the propitiation he has taken all of the curse of sin on himself. He took all the punishment, which means there's nothing left for you except mercy. There's nothing for you but mercy. So in your pain, in your disappointment in life, God's not paying you back. Listen, he might be trying to, he might be trying to win you back. He might be trying to call you back to himself, but he's not paying you back. He's not. Hebrews chapter 12 says it like this. I'll put it up here. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. That could be read sons and daughters. He's treating you as children. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline. Verse 10, for they were disciplined, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. The writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, listen, when, when God trains his children, his sons, his daughters, when he trains Christians, when he reproves them, when he disciplines them, it's not pleasant. It's, it's painful, but it's not punishment. It's not punishment. It's, it's discipline. It's discipline. It's not always chipper. Right? Christians like to say this all the time. God is good all the time and all the time. God is good, right? We say that. 
right? I, I, I probably could have started that. You would have chanted it back at me like a weird cult, right? We could have done that. No problem, okay? And listen to me. It's true. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. That is a true statement. And sometimes our experience says this. God, this doesn't feel so good right now. God is good all the time. Yeah, and I hate this. This hurts. And you don't have to pretend with God that you're all right. You don't have to pretend. Okay, sometimes we think with Christmas that we got to like prance in here like everything's okay. We can just like mute out some of our feelings of angst and pain and what's going on because it's like, oh, it's Christmas. I'll eat some cookies. I'll wrap some things. We'll you know, listen to some songs. We'll watch some, some shows. We'll laugh at Will Ferrell. Like we'll do our things. And it's going to somehow just kind of mute out the reality of my existence. But the Christmas story opens up with disappointment and disbelief and discipline. It starts there. So you don't have to pretend this Christmas. If you're not okay, the worst thing that you can do is pretend that you're okay. If it's not all right, hey, it's okay not to be all right. Jesus loves honest people. He loves honest people. He loved honest people in the New Testament. Even honest people who were so ashamed of what they were going through or what they had done or what they were ashamed to be honest about that they couldn't even talk to him. They just sobbed. Think the woman caught in adultery. Just sobbing before Jesus. This is why the Bible says that the broken and contrite in spirit, I do not despise. So this is what I'm talking about, discipline. I see it in the text. And this illustration of like training or disciplining children, it can get, um, it can get lost in our time. Like in 2023, the idea of disciplining kids has changed. Did you know this? You've seen this? You've been to Target recently? You're like, whoa. <laughs> I mean, for, for, for reals, okay? Uh, there is a fad going on with some parents who have been convinced that it's more important to let your child explore and figure out their identity than it is to train your child up into maturity. I mean, that's a fad going on. And I, listen, I, I think it's ruining a generation. And you're like, well, that's how I raise my child. It's like, yeah, we know, okay? We see you. We know. And we chuckle, but listen, I know, like the temptation is real. I get it. I get the temptation because I want Harper, my daughter, I want her to like me. I do. Gosh, I love that little girl. Uh, I don't want her to just love me. I want her to like me. I want to be the fun parent. Can you believe that? That I want to be the fun parent in the house, okay? I want her to like me. I want her to want to hang out with me. I want her to think that I'm cool. I want my daughter to actually enjoy me, like me. But God's call on my life as her father is not primarily to be her friend. Gosh, I hope it grows into that. Man, I, I want to be buddies with her for the rest of my life. 
But my call right now as her father is to have her best in mind. Even when it makes me unpopular with her. And that means that sometimes I'm going to look to her like an enemy. Happened this week. In the Martin household, we were the enemies. Sometimes I have to even inflict discipline, inflict pain on her because I love her. See, love and discipline are the synonyms. Love and discipline are synonymous. Punishment and discipline are not synonymous. Love and discipline are synonymous. It takes a higher degree of love to put boundaries around my little girl for her own maturity and her safety than it would be to just let her run, run, run amok. Figure it out on your own. How hateful would that be? So God disciplines Zechariah. Not as a punishment, but in love. And then we're going to look and see where this train goes, okay? Disappointment leads to disbelief, which leads to discipline, which then leads to what? I'm so glad that you asked, okay? Uh, we're going to flip over to verse 57, or scroll down to verse 57. Luke 1 is a long chapter, you guys. We'll get back to the middle of it. Verse 57. Now, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. And she returned to her home. Oh, I'm sorry. That's not, that's verse 56. The time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by that name. So, so I'll catch you up. It's nine months later. Actually, nine months and eight days later, officially, okay? But, but Elizabeth gives birth to this boy, just like the angel had predicted. And all the friends and family start gathering around. They're hanging out and they're rejoicing because, listen, there's, this is a miracle baby. This is a miracle child. Not only was Elizabeth barren early in her life, but remember, at this point, she's, she's advanced, she is advanced, and when, when Grammy has a baby, we're going to party, right? So they're all there. They all show up. And it comes time, the eighth day, they would have circumcised the son, and they would have given him a name. They would have named the child, and they all assumed that she was going to call him Zechariah after his father. That's, that's what would have fit with tradition, they were really all about themselves at this point, okay? Nothing has really changed. This has been Zechariah the second, okay? Junior, Zechariah Junior. But she says, no, his name is gonna be John. Call him John. And all of Elizabeth's crew are like, oh man, she, she really is advanced. <laughs> Listen, sweetie, nobody's called John in your family. That's, that's what the text says. Look at verse 62. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. So see, that's how you know he's deaf, because you don't make signs to people who can hear. 
Just so you know, okay, that's offensive. Um, They made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called, and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So you've got Zechariah, the priest, who's, who's walked for decades with this disappointment of not having a child. Walked for decades with this disappointment. He believes, though, that God is good. He believes that God is merciful. He believes all the good and right things about God, and yet God never answered his prayer. I believed all the right things, and yet, God, you never you never did your part. And then finally, God sends him an angel and he's told it's possible and he disbelieves. He doesn't believe it. And then God lovingly disciplines Zechariah. But now he's had time to wrestle. He's had time, like, you ever get, you ever get busted in something, in your disbelief? In, in, in your sin, you ever get busted in something and you have time to wrestle with the things that come after you get busted? He's now had time to wrestle with the shame, with the frustration, with the feelings of stupidity. I'm a priest. I should have known better. I should have believed. And, and, and all the things that accompany you when God busts you in the middle of your disbelief. He, he, he's in that moment. Nine months. And what's Zechariah's response after nine months of discipline? Gosh, he busts out of this cocoon with, his name is John. No, that's not my name. That's his, his name is John. He obeys God. He believes and he obeys God and the discipline subsides. The first thing on the tablet is his name is John. And what's the first thing out of his mouth once his tongue is loosed? Pent up worship explodes out of this guy. I mean, seriously, like like I'll I'll keep with the D theme just because that's how I do. Here's the last D, delight. Disappointment, disbelief, discipline ultimately for delight. It explodes out of him. He literally starts singing. Look at verse 67. Look at verse 67. He start, this is a song. He starts a song. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Hey, skip down to verse 76. We're not gonna read the whole thing, but 76. And now he's talking to John. Okay, his new baby. He says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. And you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
the purpose of the Lord's discipline is ultimately to lead us to overflow with delight. That's what the writer of Hebrews said. And that's what Luke chapter one displays for us. Discipline is meant to lead to delight. So, so hear me, some of you have been disciplined. Like, you know that story. You have those years. You had your nine months in your cave, as it were, silent, unable to hear, unable to speak, wrestling. Some of you have been disciplined. Listen, some of y'all are being disciplined. Like, it's happening. But I just want you to know that God does this to us in love. He doesn't punish Christians. He doesn't punish his people. He disciplines them for their good. He wants you to learn to love him. He wants you to learn to trust him. I know, I know it feels painful. I, I know it feels like it's destroying you. But his intentions are to heal you. His intentions are not for your destruction. It's for your redemption. His intent is your ultimate delight. So what I want us to get from the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth is this. Church, I want us to enter into this Christmas season knowing this story. And I want us to enter in learning to trust in the goodness of God. Like, I don't know how you came in here. Maybe, maybe you sprinted into church because it's Advent and you're pumped, right? You're like Buddy the Elf. I just love this. And maybe you just kind of clawed your way down that hallway. Now, it would have been really helpful if you had actually physically crawled because then we would have known that you needed help. But most of you just put on a face and showed up today. But some of you are, are clawing your way into this season and what I wish for you is that I could convince you that what's going on is, is for your good and it's because he loves you. Like what I wish that you could get in this season is that even when he breaks your bones, like even when he, he shuts you up in silence, it's, it's not because, because he's trying to destroy you, it's because he's trying to, to save you. It's for your salvation. It's because he desires you to grow. Out of this pain, God is ushering in salvation for the whole world. Out of Zechariah's pain of not having a child would come the forerunner of Jesus, the Messiah. And so I just wish that you could realize that the love of God actually flows over you right now. And, and, and that you would just re resign yourself this season to completely cast yourself on him, to trust him. There are many ways to be barren. I just wonder what it is for you. Lots of different barrennesses. What's the rawest, softest, most difficult part of your life? What is that? What I want to plead with you to believe is this. Listen, God is more about your good than you are. Do you believe that? God, God is more about your good than even you are. 
And I, and I know that as a fact because I know that no one has hurt you as deeply as you have. No one's lied to you more. No one's hurt you more. No one's messed with you more than you. You are the least kind person to yourself. Right? If we could get transcript what your brain says to you, I would say, please stop hanging out with yourself. You're not good for you. And therefore, listen, God is more about your good than you are. He wants what's good for you. He wants what's life-giving for you. And there's something that occurs in our disappointment and discipline that, that brings us into holiness. There's something that occurs about the, like through the discipline of the Lord that detaches our love for the things of this world that so easily distract and makes us more and more like Jesus. It's how he refines us. Remember we talked about that a few weeks ago? He refines us. Listen, maybe when we're in those places where, where God starts to press and push on those nerves, when, when he brings up the pain of not having a child in our moment of glory, in that moment, maybe he does that for a purpose. When he, dis, when he disciplines us when we disbelieve, when he confronts us in our ignorance, when he wounds us in our strength, when the business starts to fail, when the marriage starts to get difficult, when we can't understand the calamity that's around us, when the disease affects our body and it's not going anywhere, when sorrow enters our life, what if those things aren't happening to us because God's angry with us? Like what if it's not punishment? What if he's not distant? What if he's not unable to help? What if instead they're happening because God loves us too much to save us from them? Maybe that's what this Christmas might be for you. And if you sprinted in here, God bless you. We'll sing some awesome songs. We'll light some candles. We'll do the things. Eat your cookies. Watch your buddy, okay? But for some, maybe this Christmas is more of a Zechariah and Elizabeth Christmas for you. And he's trying to get you to trust in the goodness of God. Father, we bless you. I love, Lord, the overlooked portions of the Christmas story. Because, gosh, I love, the, I love the fun parts. I love the joy to the world parts. I love the explosion of angels in the sky bringing good news of great joy to all people. I love those things. But, God, I love the, the grimy parts, the raw parts. Might I even say the real parts? Or there's people, I'm sure, today who, they may not have looked it, but they crawled in here today. I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd give them courage that they don't have to pretend this year. But if it's not okay, that's all right. That you value their honesty, that you value their mess and that you're up to something trying to train them to discipline them into better life into full life this is hard this means we don't get to mask this Christmas with fake joy with fake hope with fake peace it means we have to do the hard work underneath and so God I pray
courage for my brothers and sisters, for myself, that we would be courageous to do the hard work of pressing into our discipline, which ultimately should lead to delight. And then, Lord, I pray that worship would explode from us. Pent up delight would just overflow in song from us. This is good work. This is hard work, Father. Help us to do, uh, do this. Empower us by your spirit for this. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, by the power of the spirit. Amen.